Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And on this podcast, I interview Neil Sahoda. He is an IBM master inventor, and he works with United Nations under the Artificial Intelligence AI for Good. Uh, he's a keynote speaker with them. He's has a number of publications. He is an advisor to a ton of startups all around uh, social AI for good. And so we talk a lot about the sustainable goals of the United Nations, his part in that. And we talk about narrow artificial intelligence compared to general artificial intelligence and super intelligence. We talk about his book called Own the AI Revolution. And then we cross that over with game design, uh, social design, how countries and how the United Nations could possibly use narrow game design versus general game design to apply to the sustainable goods and sustainable goals. And so without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Neil Sohoga. Hey, Neil. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, my pleasure, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited for you to be here, man. Um, it's been a little while since we chatted, and um, I'm really excited uh, for you to be on the podcast. Hey, well, I'm, I'm stoked to be here. Very honored to be a guest, and uh, I hope our, your listeners will have fun with our conversation today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I think the last time we chatted was um, teaching classes. Cause I've taught a couple classes with you uh, for UCI and UCI Law on like immersive technologies. Um, and the last one was a little different because we did it. Uh, it was the first one that we did virtual. Yeah, no, no shock that uh, you know it's unfortunately the time of COVID nineteen, and so and to try and practice social distancing, uh, the university actually a lot of the universities have gone to a virtual or remote teaching format, which you know if you've ever taken classes, um, it's not a traditional like. You know, online class where you watch a pre-recorded lecture and you do some work. Uh, no time to shoot those type of videos. We really have to try and do things live, so it's very synchronous. And you know, for a lot of professors and for some of the students, especially the law students, it's it's a whole new type of format. And you know, I remember in the past when you've been kind of to come in, we have you come in and do like a little VR demo and show, show some cool stuff like you know, virtual courtroom. Doesn't quite translate, unfortunately, in this medium, right? We have to think of new ways to uh, try and engage and create that immersive experience. hundred uh, percent, yeah. It was the first time I've ever taught virtually like that, especially to like a university classroom. And I was just like, normally I can definitely lean on my demos and being able to engage people in that kind of uh, uh, like environment. And so it was, it was totally new. Um, but it actually, I mean, it, it felt really good, though, in the sense of, I mean, you could see everybody's faces and people were taking turns and you could still, there, there was still a lot of, you know, um, emotions and knowledge and all that stuff being transferred around, but it definitely felt different, you know? It, it, well, it, it does, but I think there's a great opportunity here, actually. You know, I very much believe what Winston Churchill said, where he said, you know, pessimist, sees or you know looks at opportunities and sees problems whereas an optimist 
you know, sees or, you know, looks at problems and sees opportunities. You know, we always are talking about, you know, one day having these virtual classrooms where it doesn't matter where you're in the world, everyone can join together and have this more deeper, immersive online experience and, you know, live interaction. I think ironically now with this move by, by universities and even some K through 12 schools, that will accelerate that push towards that virtual classroom, which hopefully also improves access to education for people worldwide. A hundred percent. And I, you know, I was thinking the same thing as like, you know, we've kind of, you know, we were originally, you know, hunters, hunters and gatherers and tribes. And then we went from that to an agricultural society. And then we went from that to an industrial era. And then we kind of got into this era where, you know, we slowly kind of like naturally through the process of, you know, digital osmosis have kind of gravitated to being more and more online. We've started having more and more online presences through, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all these other types of things. And it was really like, this is the first time it, it wasn't like we were just naturally just going there out of like sheer desire. I mean, you know, people have gone online for many things that they desire, um, for purchasing or entertainment or whatever else you could imagine. Um, I think this is the first time it was like, no, for the benefit of humanity, you should not get in front of anybody around you and you need to lock yourself away and need to find a way to be able to connect and you need to find a way to do everything that you did already, but you got to be able to do it from home with the tools that you're giving. I feel like it's almost like being, you know, uh, kicked out of the digital nest, right? And, <laughs> and having to fly. It, it's it's tough, right? As, mm. as people, human beings, we're very social animals. We're used to that interaction, and you know, just now saying like, "Hey, let's get get her for coffee or for lunch." You can't do that anymore. It's a huge change for us. It, it, it totally is because I'm normally like you know you know being in the startup world and all that stuff. My kind of go through is, "Hey, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's let's get together and chat." And now it's just like, well, um, we we can we can do it digitally, and uh, you know, but. It, Thankfully, because we already have so many, you know, strong digital um, uh, systems in place, we now just kind of figure out how more creatively to leverage them, which is which is really neat. Have you seen, I mean, like with this whole thing, you know, talking about the opportunities of this whole COVID thing, I mean, what have you seen really transform? Has there been any any like outliers or things that you've seen that have a lot of great potential uh, to kind of really help us connect in this virtual era? I I actually think the big thing is that now that more people are doing it, it's going to become more the norm, mm-hmm. right? You know, my, my background, especially my days working at IBM, what we're, what we're all doing today was actually normal. It, it was very rare for us to go into an office or get together. You know, we were always using – you know, these virtual collaboration tools to stay engaged, to, you know, the community, to talk. So it's it's interesting to see that, you know, people always want, ask me, like, well, how do you do that? And mm-hmm. does it feel different? And, yeah, at first it does, but you kind of get used to it, right? And it's a different type of interaction. I don't, I don't you know, people say it's like it's it's not quite the same and you're right, but it doesn't mean that the, the, the amount of social interaction you can get is actually less. Mm-hmm. A different type, different form that you know you get used to, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing, but I think you know for a lot of organizations that were not built to work remotely, are now realizing that it is feasible that this virtual world could be 
you know, our virtual office could be a real thing. And you look at what's happening worldwide. Like, you know, I posted a video recently showing how that the waters have actually cleared up in Venice. You can actually see the fish now, right? Oh, that's cool. Wuhan, you know, um, because everything had been shut down for 10 weeks, the, the pollution cleared up. And they said, like, since the first time, since, like, the 90s, birds have actually returned to the city. Actually, birds flying around in the trees, and it's like we've kind of forgotten what an impact we have on the world. And you know, again, I'm just trying to always try to look for the you know the opportunities or the the bright side of things. It's it's interesting how the world has kind of healed or adapted. I mean, you know, I look out past my backyard into this big park, and I I see like ducks and birds and squirrels and rabbits all roaming around. I'm like, wow, you know, they adapted pretty quickly you know a week plus here and uh it's just it's just amazing we kind of forget some of these things yeah it's beautiful it's almost like feels um healthier for everybody around that um i, I think i saw like a, a an instagram post from elon musk it was like the planet before uh covid and it was all sick and unhealthy the planet after uh, COVID, it's all healthy and healed because we're not traveling, we're not moving, we're not, you know, pollution's dropping, we're all staying indoors, and you know, humanity's great effect. It, you know, you think about it um, on the planet is our need to get from point A to point B, and that fossil fuels and getting outdoors and doing all that stuff. And so, if we could find a way to live sustainably uh, inside little boxes, we would help, you know, separate ourselves from nature a bit. That would it would allow nature that chance to kind of heal up. So. In a way, it is actually, a, it's a good thing, it's a great thing for nature. Um, and I do think, you know, there are some, it is a bit painful for humanity to go through this. But again, um, I believe that, you know, through the most painful lessons, you usually get the most from it. And so, because you, you, you have to change, you have to do something, which is, I've never seen people be more clean than, like, people push a finger on their elevator button, someone pulls out some pure all. You know, everybody is like <laughs> so mindful of how being, Cognancy healthy if they could just have and it's it's because it's it's you know it's this combination of both selfish and selfless like they don't want to get sick they don't want to give sick and nobody knows and so everyone is super cognizant if only we could have that same frame of reference um, on you know the day to day um, you know like like nine eleven created us to kind of bond together you know us you know there's a lot of like connections like you know um, USA all together is one um, but after a while it fades so hopefully we can find a way to kind of remember this. And remember that certain standards, and you know, keep the good lessons. Uh, with uh, one thing, I was going to say also, I actually saw a teacher teaching um, mathematics in Half Life VR, um, and so he was teaching a class in Half Life with the headset on, and he was on a whiteboard inside there, um, showing the, you know the angles of um, triangles and, and how they added up and subtracted, and so you can you can see that you know we are adapting. Um, you have actually, a, a, you know, you have a really interesting background, especially, um, you know, from IBM to working for the UN and, you know, all the things along the way. Um, would you mind just kind of giving just a, a little background of kind of how you became um, um, kind of like the, uh, uh, you know, working with the UN for the AI for good and kind of that, that path that led you to where you are today? Sure. Um, I'll warn everybody that, like most stories, it happened by accident. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, one of my very good friends, uh, Stephen Ebaraki, you know, I, I helped him out with something and you know, he called me up to thank me. And, 
he's like, Neil, you know, the the UN gets together every four years for this big kind of signature conference. You get, you know, the the assembly, the ambassadors, all these guys together. Um, you know, I I, I, wanna, I was talking to them because I sit on the, the organizing committee and uh, I put your name forward to give a keynote. And I'm like, yeah, right, Stephen. You know, totally thought he was just joking around. I was like, no, seriously. He's like, actually, two of the UN guys had heard you talk before. And like, wow, you think he'll really do it? I, I totally thought he was pulling my leg. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, of course, I wound up doing it. It was a great honor. I was warned in advance of giving the keynote that a lot of the world leaders thought that AI was Terminator time. The machines were going to rise up. Eradicate humanity and conquer the world. I'm like, okay. So I'm, I'm I'm very good about trying to make you know things real and relevant for whoever I'm talking with or trying to help whatever organizations. And so you know, I just started thinking about you know the United Nations and their focus on you know helping the world, social impact, sustainable development goals. And so I gave a, a keynote that was a little bit was a little bit about what is AI, but more so about how it was actually being used for public services and how it could be applied for other you know, public good types of work. And apparently my, my keynote was really well received. And, and that evening, you know, I was approached by the Secretary General and a few other people saying like, hey, great talk. You really got us thinking. We really thought there's something to be feared. We didn't really think about this might be a tool that we could actually use. Uh, I want, we got some momentum. I want to explore what we could do. And so, you know, the following week we had a, a big powwow meeting with, you know, chief with his chief of staff and some other key folks, and basically came to the conclusion that when it comes to sustainable development goals, and if people mm -hmm. are not familiar with them, there's 17 goals for a better world. Um, the shortfall is anywhere from seven to 20 trillion a year in trying to make these a reality. The goal is to make them a reality, I think, by if I remember correctly, 2035, mm -hmm. and technology, emerging technology, especially, could be a bridge or to you know get across that gap in terms of funding and resources. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was, could we use AI as some of that bridge? And so we started this initiative called AI for Good. And the goal was really to get people together, build a community where people could volunteer and contribute resources and equipment. We could actually work on projects towards those SDGs using AI. And you know, our first step in doing that was we had to build awareness. And mm -hmm. so we, we held the what turned out to be the first AI for Good Summit about four years ago to start that community building. And, you know, today there's actually 116 active projects going on. Wow. What are some of the uh, uh, global sustainable um, causes or goals that you have? So there's there's things like, you know, combating climate change, zero hunger and poverty, um, reduce income inequality, uh, access to justice, good health, um, improve uh, 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 diversity and inclusion, uh, things wow. around actually, uh, you know, smarter cities, mm -hmm. waste management, you know, protecting life on land and on sea. I, I won't bore your audience with all <laughs> 17. But they're they're essentially goals that help everybody. Sure, you know, we're all we're all trying to build a better planet, or at least help the planet. And this is a good way to kind of start pulling people together because you think about climate change, right? Yeah, you know, a lot of people are worried about climate change, but you look at a lot of people 
really don't do much because like I'm one person. What can I do? Right. And it's not just you in isolation. It's if you see the opportunities to work with other people or you have an idea and you need other people to actually pursue that. Yeah. Right. Like, go ahead. No, yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, a lot of it is, you know, when, when something feels so big, you know, we feel like disempowered. We feel this kind of like learned helplessness, kind of like voting in elections. You get a sense of like, I'm just a drop in the bucket. Um, but you don't, you know, you don't realize that you do have an impact, you know, you know, depending on how large or how small it, it, you, you really do have this impact. And, you know, um, one of my other uh, advisors has this um, idea of he looks at money and say that the problem with money is it doesn't tell you the total cost of a good because there's a lot of things that like say you buy a pair of shoes for 70 bucks or whatever and you say it's 70 dollars but you don't understand that there's also a carbon cost uh, there's a humanity cost and there's like this total cost that you can't see when purchasing those items so if you only knew that you know if, if we could get some more direct feedback um, in the actions that we took on a day-to-day basis like if i went and went for a drive and i could see that not only did my you know, it took X amount of gallons of, of gas, but I could tell that it had, you know, 0.001% effect on the climate. Or if I could have a way to get more direct feedback, I'd feel more empowered um, to working on something like that. And I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges with these monstrous tasks is there's no direct feedback to the individuals. So it feels like, well, you know, I'm just one person, so I, and I, I'm not going to make a difference, and I'm not getting any feedback on. You know, I, I take a piece of plastic and I just throw it out the window, and I just, I just forget about it. There's, there's no, you know, um, there's no feedback and there's no emotional attachment to it, so it makes it difficult uh, for the individual to to rally behind. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it, it does, but you know, it's also because that aggregate is so important. Like I, you know, some people might have seen those water ball uh, filling stations, whereas you're filling your water. It actually has this counter on there and tells you how many plastic bottles have been saved by people doing this, right? So it's not just you, but I, I remember going like going like this, and you look at it, it's like, wow, this month there's been over two million water bottles been saved by all of us. That's fantastic, you know. That's, That's moving the needle. I love that. I love that. See that right there. It's it's one of those micro um, measurements. I've, you know, here's one of my beliefs, and I was going to talk with you about this, Neil, and and so let's let's hop into this. Um, uh, so you, I mean, you're very familiar with, uh, there is, and let's, let's actually open this up for the audience. Um, and then I'll go to the thing I'm going to talk about. Um, you, there is, um, narrow artificial intelligence, right? And then there's general artificial intelligence and then there's super artificial, intelli- artificial intelligence. Can you please explain the difference between those so people can understand it? Sure. So artificial narrow intelligence or AI means that we've taught a machine to do a very like specific task. And mm-hmm. that's actually all it can do. It it doesn't learn on its own. Right. If you teach it how to drive a car, it's not going like, well, how do I work if I can fly a plane? Mm-hmm. All it knows is that universe that you taught it. Yes. So that's it. Very limited use you, in that regard. You have an ex- example like um, would it be like counting numbers or would it be, um, you know, placing an X on a square? What Do you have any examples that people could kind of... I mean, those are good ones, but, you know, I'll, I'll give uh, maybe a more, more uh, complex one. Think about a, a, an AI that could read uh, a contract, mm-hmm. right? 
just a purchasing contract between a, a seller and a buyer, right? That's an example of A&I, that it can read that contract and tell you the clauses or even write the contract, but that's all it can do. Yeah. You can't, you can't write like a, an employment agreement. You can't drive a car. You can't do anything else. It does that one thing you've actually taught it to do, mm-hmm. which is in this case is I can write purchasing agreements for you. Artificial general intelligence or AGI is actually what we see more on the TV shows and stuff where the machine actually learns things and wants to learn things on its own. Mm-hmm. So it has, you know, we'll call it some form of curiosity where if I teach an AI like how to play the game Go, it might say, well, cool, now I'm going to learn chess and go out and try and learn chess on its own and say, hey, you know what, I want to learn how to fly a helicopter and try to learn how to fly a <laughs> helicopter on its own. <laughs> So it expands beyond just the one thing that we've essentially taught it. Sure. And it is essentially doing that on its own. And then artificial superintelligence or ASI is essentially the concept where the machine's intelligence exceeds our own as people, as, as humanity. So it reaches a level of consciousness and a mode of thought where it can, for lack of a better word, it's much smarter than we are. And so start conceiving of concepts or other things that we could not conceive of at least yet. And that's where people get kind of freaked out into the Terminator type of future. It's like, oh, my God, you know, is it going to be like us to try and take over the world because it's the smartest thing? Go, you know, those humans are a danger. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I believe in the cyborg future. Yeah, I believe we're moving towards integration of human and machine, uh, you know, kind of augmenting our own human capabilities with machine capabilities. Mm-hmm. But I can assure everyone, if you're worried about this, A and I is very much real today. AGI, people say we're either 10 years, 50 years, or we'll never get there. Mm-hmm. And because of that, ASI is so far away, or it may never happen. But I'm more of the mindset that we'll try and actually augment ourselves as machines before we actually get to AGI. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, it will, yeah we're, we're, we're getting there, especially with the help with Elon Musk's Neuralink and, and all of that. Um, I do want to touch on that, but I want to circle back to this thing. So we have, we have narrow intelligence, right, which is a specific task that is trained on. And generally, there's three levels of that, right? There is the first just measuring. Can they measure it? And then you can tweak the system on level two, and then you go into what's predictive analysis over time, and that works well in narrow intelligence, correct? That's right. All right. So you that's come us a lot. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, uh, well, uh, you being my advisor for uh, a while now, I've I definitely uh, uh, learned quite a bit from you. So thank you so much. And so, but from that, you have those those levels of intelligence for artificial intelligence, especially in the narrow, which is more machine learning versus artificial intelligence is more thought of as general intelligence. One of my theories that I think is that I, as we're merging these technologies together, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, all these things, uh, we are starting to not only have narrow intelligence um, for artificial intelligence, I also think we have narrow gamification. Narrow gamification, like was that water bottle that you're mentioning, so that you're measuring how many bottles of water are you saving over time, 
right? Or you're measuring, um, you know, how, many, how much money in the bank you're able to accrue, or you're measuring how many points in the game that is. But I think where everybody wants to get to is I would call it general gamification, where you're actually your whole life you're living inside a giant video game, um, kind of like a Ready Player One style. So you know, you go and you high five a friend and you get plus 50 points to social. Uh, you go and you help someone across the street and they and they and they do this, or you 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 know save X amount of money, but you have this you know general artificial intelligence that is having this general gamification that is overarching your life, driving you towards being your best self. And I think that is kind of um, kind of an unspoken um, desire that humanity has as a way to have something else measure the performance so that they can get more direct feedback. So that's a, a very interesting idea, right? Because mm-hmm. people, well, most people I'll say love games and there's always some level of competition and trying to earn status. Mm-hmm. What, what you're talking about is, is interesting because I think people look at through different lens depending on how it gets rolled out. Because in China, they have the Smiles program, which is essentially a social credit yep. score system. And it, it, what they're doing out there is obviously trying to encourage people to behave better. But everyone has a certain score. And if you do good things and you're helpful, your score goes up. That tells you to more discounts, you know, some tax rebates, maybe lower rent, some of these other things. But if you do bad things or you, you know, treat people poorly, your score goes down. Mm-hmm. And at, but anyway, if your score is too low, you start getting denied access to things like can't ride planes or trains or buses, stuff like that. Actually, there was a, a funny case where uh, I believe it was a famous Chinese actress was caught on camera jaywalking. And so she got her points docked. And I think it docked her low enough where she couldn't fly or ride a train. But she actually said that, hey, I was never in this city, and I'm a famous actress, I wouldn't be walking around. So they sent her a video of her committing that infraction. And if you watch the video, there's actually a bus. And on the bus is an advertisement with her face on it. Ah. And making an illegal turn, but the camera picked up her face and thought it was a person illegally crossing the street to jaywalking. Uh. Yeah, so it was, it was interesting, right? So it's interesting the, the impact that China's seen in that you know, some people obviously are behaving better and they think they actually a good system. They like kind of the, the rewards out of it. But could be a little bit of flaws depending <laughs> on how we do it. It's, it's, it's very – it's ironically very similar. It's very similar to um, the Black Mirror episode yep. where they had that, that uh, you know, social score system. But you, but you saw that the progressive thing over time was like overall, you know, people were kinder, nicer to everybody else. But then you start to slip and then you kind of get in this kind of digital social quicksand where every step you take gets you farther and farther in the hole. And then finally, you're so you, you have that momentum of the uh, negativity or uh, negative social encounters that you're just you're it's almost impossible. And you kind of have to quit the game. Um, and which honestly, I think is you know, removing the digital measurement aspect is true to life. I mean, people build up momentum, you know, someone gets hurt and so they, you know, they have a bad day and so they say something negative and that other person, you know, then you start to spread that negativity, then you start to reflect that and then you start to kind of compound that and then even though it's not being measured anywhere else, you all of a sudden become like just a prickly pear of a person because (laughs) you have, you've built up that momentum of negativity and so, you know, I think it's very... You know, humans are weird in the sense that, you know, we want the 
everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die in the sense that everybody wants the results from accountability, but nobody wants to be accountable. And we especially don't want to be accountable in a flawed system, you know, because we feel that, you know, one of the things that we, we thrive on is fairness. And if we feel that the system is unfair, then we figure like we, we, it you, makes you want to rebel against the system. So much like the jaywalking thing, it was an unfair system as a flawed nature, but you know, no systems are perfect. So, you know, it's, it's, it, you, I don't have a good answer for how do you balance out, um, you know, this this giant overarching social accountability, um, along with, um, you know, uh, loopholes in the system that can be both negative and positive. Well, uh, I, and that's the big challenge, right? Um, you know, you look at China and their spouse program. The general consensus in China that it's a good thing, right? Mm. Whereas I think. People outside of China look at it and say, oh, you know, this is kind of a little big brotherish and this kind of stuff. And I think part of that's because it's driven by the government. Mm. You know, West, a lot of Western cultures, like especially in the United States, we, we don't tend to like those things. So is there a different way to roll it out? But if you suddenly you had, uh, you know, a Facebook or a Google rolling out a similar type of program, You'll have another group of people come in and say, whoa, 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 this is big corporations trying to, you know, influence us and get us to buy stuff. So, you know, I don't know if there's a perfect way to roll out such a system. I mean, it would have to come from society itself, right? That, and that's the hardest thing, right? And, you know, bringing it back to what we were talking about original, these sustainable goals. You know, you have 17 sustainable goals. You know, how do you get everyone to rally behind the cause? Um, you know, if the, the UN was to make something that gamified these 17 different goals and rolled this out, I mean, you know, would it be perceived as big brother? I mean, how would you even roll out something like that? I mean, if you took one goal at a time, like the carbon footprints or zero hunger or whatever it is, I mean, I mean, do you have any thoughts around, you know, what a system could look like if the UN was to roll out something like this to try to help, you know, this overarching humanitarian goal? So ironically, you're hitting on an interesting spot because the UN recognizes the need for metrics, right? We have to be able to measure some of these things and see the progress of different countries, regions, and hopefully incentivize them or gamify it, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I actually worked with the UN and a, a couple of other organizations like McKenzie to put together, you know, these this kind of metrics and dashboard, and we'll call it a little bit of, you know, incentivization. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will tell you, it was it was not it was not well received by uh, the member nations. Uh, it just I'm just generally speaking. It's not to say that, that they all hated it. Sure. Like, but I think there was a bit of reluctance in that. You know, when you start measuring something, suddenly it kind of shines a light on it. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're not doing a great job, um, what do you do about it? Especially if you don't if you don't have the resources to commit to it, or you think you're doing a great job and you kind of play that up in PR, and then the light gets shown on it. It's like, well, you're you're doing an okay job, not necessarily a good job. And, yep. and I think that that was kind of the big thing. No one wants to kind of be told that, well, you're doing okay work, not not even good work, right? They don't want that kind of backlash. <laughs> Yep. And then and it goes back to the whole human accountability thing. Everybody wants the recognition. Everybody wants praise. Everybody wants to feel like they're doing better. You know, everybody wants to feel like their IQ is higher above average. But, you know, if you just look at law of averages, like you're, not everybody's going to be that way. 
and so the you know the question is you know our people our groups our organizations our governments are they willing to take a look in the mirror and reflect back to go okay if this is if we're going to play this game and this is the position that I'm at, then I need to put in more effort, more time, more resources to level up my game to do what these other people are doing. Or I don't want to play because I don't I don't I just don't want to put any effort. So I'm going to quit. And so that's the that's the challenge, because if we all know we're doing it for this global good and we're all trying to get better and I'm performing at average or below, I have two options. I either I either can level up my game and put in more effort, which all humans hate effort. We all want the, you know, the lowest amount of resistance possible. I mean, innately, the way we are designed is the lowest energy possible, right? And we all go about that differently. And then just the way that we model the world. Some people put in massive amounts of, you know, physical effort because, you know, they feel on the back half they can, they, they understand delayed gratification. They can figure that out. Other people eat Twinkies and donuts every single day because that's their version of lowest. It's, it's the, the interesting is, is we just give ourselves our own meaning, but, you know, if I guess part of the thing is how do you get these groups to say, look, if this is reflecting light back on how you're performing, you can either ante up or you can quit. I just don't know, like, you know, unless you can get really people to start playing the game, it's like having everybody saying, okay, we all know we need to work out, for example. But, but then half the people don't want to work out because every time they get on the scale, they can tell they're not where they want to be. But it's like, but we're all doing this together and if we're all in this together if you're not working out then i don't know is that do, do we invoke some sort of china system where we put sanctions or or tariffs on certain uh, governments because they're not performing at those sustainable levels um and then if so who makes the decisions it, it does get complicated you know and uh well, well you're, you're talking about like carrot stick type of incentives mm-hmm. but I, I think before you even get to that point it, it boils down to a choice Right. People have to consciously say, okay, yeah, you know what? Um, I'm not performing as good as I want to. Right. That doesn't mean performing bad. Maybe you're really doing good, but it's like, I want to get to great, you know? But people want to have to do that. I, I, ironically, you know, when, when I work with, you know, I work with some companies to help them kind of build a disruptive thinking kind of culture to, you know, get those new ideas and make them a reality. And one of the questions I'll throw out to you know to the executives is just raise your hand and tell me who here is an above average driver, right? And it'll be a room of like, you know, 30, 40 people and inevitably it's about 80% every time raise their hand and say, I'm a better than average driver. And so I look out and say, well, 80% of you see you're above average, that's not, you know, statistically possible. <laughs> Right. Why? Why is that? And they're like, well, maybe just us in general are actually just happen to be all better drivers. No, nope, no. Nope, this is larger, larger enough sample size that that's not true. Right. Yep. And it, it's an interesting process to kind of work through them because it's like, hey, if someone kind of cuts you off and almost sideswipes you doing that. How do you feel? Oh, my God, super angry. That guy's a terrible driver and something like that. They're like, what if you do that to somebody else? Well, I had a good reason. You know, I was going late for work or this. You know, I had to go pick up the kids before daycare ended. It's like – and that's the problem, right? We can rationalize our own behavior, but we don't know the, the rationalization for why other people are doing that. And so we, we tend to think of our, ourselves better and other people not as as good. And that kind of clouds our perception because we, you know, we really 
believe that other people think the same way that we do. And so we get weirded out when they don't think the same way, when they don't see things the same way. And it's like, but we're all different. We all say we're unique, we're special, we bring different things to the table. Why would we think the same way? And, and I think that's the big challenge here and that one, we have to kind of get agreement that these are the goals, sustainable development goals, social credit score system, whatever it may be. And then you're gonna have to actually make a choice to say, I buy in and I want to do better. No matter how good I'm doing, I still want to do better. I want to contribute to these goals. Not everyone is going to do it, right? There's going to be some percentage of the population, be small, could be big, that are just not going to choose to do that. Yeah, I mean, everything, the whole point of this life is that everything's a choice, right? You get to choose, you know, what you want to focus on. You get to choose what you want to transform. And, you know, we, you know, we all, like, again, we all love progress. We all hate effort, you know, we all feel that, you know, we've, we've put in, you know, massive amounts of effort and it's, and you know one of the things I've always heard it's 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 so hard to hate up close you know if you feel like and that's why one of the things that you get mad at someone in the car because you're isolated you know someone cuts you off and they're a jerk and that's because you don't you know you're not looking them at the face you don't stop and and like have a conversation with them like hey you know what's going on you know talk to me about how was your day being you know you don't you just you just get cut off and you immediately go that's a jerk because at distance that's why if you look at the comments on youtube they're horrendous because at a distance it's so easy to just spew because you don't have that immediate social feedback that connection with people where you're staring them in the face and you have a a, a one-on-one communication and so you have that a lot with yourself internally and so you have that reflection of well it's not my fault i cut them off i was late and this person was it was important and i had to get this thing because i was running out of time and you have this personal dialogue so it's, it's very difficult to do it to yourself and so i can i can see how making these decisions you know these these especially as and also it's, it's much harder to move a giant ship like a a government country a large organization like that to try to say, okay, are we all in agreement? And to get all 330 something million Americans go, yes, we're all going to play this game. Right. And, and the thing is games are voluntary work is, is mandatory. Right. And so when someone forces you to do something more or less, that's work. When you choose actively to go out of it, that is a game that you voluntarily play. That's a games are always voluntary. And so that's the difficult thing when you big brother China or someone steps in, you know, is there is there a way to say, okay, guys, um, I know the UN. We all signed up to say we all want to make this place better, and it's so easy to sign on dotted line. But we're gonna make a, a, a another group, a group within the UN, and we're gonna call this the group that wants to play this one game. Now we don't, maybe we all don't want to agree to all 17 of these things because we can't all play 17 games at the same time. Do you guys want to go into subsections of subgroups and say, okay, these five countries are going to play the game of um, climate change. These other 10 countries are going to play the game of zero hunger. And these groups, we're all going to agree on the game. We're all Mm -hmm. going to hold ourselves accountable. And then we're all going to work together on these things. And here are our standards. Because if you don't match these standards, then you're going to get kicked out of the group. And I feel like that's, I, I, I mean, would that work as a system? To, to, to kind of create these subgroups where countries volunteer on a very narrow, specific gamification that they could all work towards? Is that something that would be possible? Well, it, it's an interesting idea, right? I mean, I think in some of the SDGs it might be effective, but not all. And I, mm. I you know, there's been a lot of models that we've been tossing around on how to try and do this. And I, at least I think what I've come to the conclusion is there's not going to be one model that's kind of 
fits all, right? We, we might have to have several different models. We might have to have 17 models for all 17 SDGs. Yeah. But it, it's, it's just so much variability in what's going on. Like you, you think about the space race, for example, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, okay, you know, Russia launched Sputnik and that, you know, kind of jumpstarted the U.S. and then became who's going to have the first person on the moon. But if the grand scheme of things, you know, even though it was a competition, what countries could actually compete, right? There are very few countries that have the resources to have a space program. And I think, interestingly enough, what we've now seen is collaboration is actually a much better form to advance, you know, space exploration so like the international space station where look no canada may never be able to commit the resources to do space exploration but they can contribute pieces and work with the u.s and russia and japan and china all these other countries so as a whole you know we get the synergy we can do a lot more whereas in somewhere some other areas competition may be like quality of health care Right, who's got the healthiest population? That kind of stuff might work better. Hopefully, you're, share, you're sharing your breakthroughs. But same thing in some areas like climate change. I don't think a competitive nature is going to work. It, I think actually will stymie countries from doing things because if you're sitting there and say, "Hey, I'm Ireland. We're going to do all these great things. We're going to go to zero emissions. We're going to have zero waste buildings. Do all these great things for the for the climate." In the grand scheme of things, it also say like, well, it doesn't matter if no other country is doing this. Our, our impact is basically getting negated by everybody else, right? We're not really moving the needle. So that kind of competitive effort is probably not a good model. It's not a good way to gamify combating climate change. Mm. Well, it sounds like there's a yeah, there's a couple of things there. The one thing being is that not everybody can can work uh, can be a part of the NFL, right? I'm I'm never gonna be an NFL. Um, linebacker. It's just one. It's not my DNA. Two. I haven't put in the time and effort to 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 get to that point. I mean, it sounds like certain countries, just because of size, GDP, um, overall performance, you know, they're going to have a much larger impact. Uh, you know, uh, U.S., China on climate change are going to have a much larger impact than you know, Finland or something. And so understanding that there's certain groups that, you know, maybe, you know, grouping people that would have the most impact and say, look, if we just pick the 80-20 of the, the companies that would, or the countries that have the most impact, you guys could all work together uh, both. And I think a, a combination and for the most part, and maybe it doesn't apply to climate change, but it could uh, uh, both a collaborative and combative um, or um, uh, uh, combination it seems to be very, very effective because we're very tribal by nature, us tribe and their tribe kind of thing. But if we're all working together, that's why I love throwing hackathons, otherwise known as content creation weekends. You know, everyone's working together towards these these goals. You know, sometimes they're sustainable goals, sometimes they're entertainment goals. But, you know, you set out, you know, a number of different goals. You get all these, you know, hundreds of people together and then you, you group them together and then you have all these teams all working together towards these goals, competing against each other. And in that kind of environment, you have these micro tribes competing against one another, all for the same types of goals. And they all kind of naturally aggregate towards the areas that they feel will be the most effective. I have skills in um, augmented reality um, and IoT sensors. So I'm gonna jump into that categorical um, um, 
field uh, because I feel like I can have the most impact. I think countries might do the same thing where, you know, um, you know, China and the U.S. probably have a better chance uh, to go into space versus um, some of these um, uh, people that don't have the same types of resources. For sure. I think that's why the choice plays such a big role in trying to do some of these things. Like, I actually remember when I had uh, Toyota as a client and they, it was Earth Day and they were doing this big thing and encouraging everyone to go check things out. And there was a little, like, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, like a little trailer where you go in and had like some high tech stuff. But privately, it was you and just this other person there. And they said, let's, you, you want to measure your carbon footprint, right? Your yearly carbon footprint. <laughs> And so you can actually do it where nobody else sees, but you see the aggregate stats of like, you know, a million other people. So you have a comparison, right? And so, you know, ask me all these questions. How often do you drive your car? Do these things? And I have actually a very small footprint thinking, yeah, right, man, I'm doing awesome. And then I get asked the question about how many miles a year do you fly, right? And back then it was like, it was about 300,000 miles. I see the bar just... Wow. Expand out like crazy. <laughs> and my first reaction was, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You know, I'm not the only person on the plane. <laughs> yeah. you know, stay on, my, my job requires me to travel. But then I, I started thinking to myself, look, those are excuses. Could I do something about it or can I do something in other places? Or maybe I could commit more time to planting trees, getting office plants, getting convincing you know, clients to do something like that to do some offsets, right? Yeah. And so I started making – that voluntary choice to say, well, you know, I could probably do something. I do want to be better. But I think if I had been like, this was a big public, you're on stage and they're measuring everyone's carbon footprint, I, I probably would have got my first reaction, which would have been, oh, wait, wait a second, I'm not the only person on the plane here, you know, and I'm creating a lot of good by flying around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, because nobody – you know, we're all doing the best we can. And, and one, it's, again, there's a story. We have a story that, that, that shows that why, especially if everyone's looking at us and then you feel even more, you know, defensive. That's why, you know, you, you praise in public, you condemn in private because it gives you a chance to feel the information, get it back and you can receive it better versus just immediately defend. I'm not a bad person. I didn't jaywalk. Don't take all my points away. Right. And that's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to absorb in the, in the public eye. Um, let me ask you this in terms of um, the areas of like if people wanted to kind of get into the world of like artificial intelligence because I'd feel like um, yeah you, I mean you have an extensive background in, in artificial intelligence working with IBM and the UN and advisors to multiple companies um, for artificial intelligence um, how does someone that like is interested in the subject I mean how would they get started uh, to really understand it to really say I think there's something here I'm interested in it what, what advice would you give them for kind of getting their feet wet in the world of artificial intelligence? Well, um, shameless plug, they should read my book. It's a good primer. <laughs> I, I will admit but, I have read it and it is, it is an excellent primer. So please, please explain a bit about it. Well, I, 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 I didn't think we were going to go down this path, but I, I wrote the book because what you're asking me is actually a common problem that I saw and that a lot of organizations, a lot of people – are they, are they know like, I know I need to be doing something with AI. I, how do I figure that out? How do I get started, right? And, and rather than working with organizations one-on-one, -on -one, I realized, well, I should say, work, I was working with organizations one-on-one, -on -one, but it wasn't an effective way to help a mass group of people, which is actually where I wrote the book. 
And so the mm-hmm. book is a little bit about what is AI, explains some of the foundational knowledge, but it also gives you like the tools on how to, you know, how do you actually think about how do you use AI? Because we have these new set of capabilities and we're so used to thinking about automation, you know, using machines to do something faster, cheaper, less errors. That only unlocks about 20% of AI, mm-hmm. right? We AI, this was the point of the book, you know, innovative thinking, right? Mm-hmm. There's different ways of doing what you're doing today. That's the, I think the definition of innovation is, it's that it's find a different way to do something yep. um, that makes it obviously better. And we're not classically trained like that. And so it's tough for a lot of organizations to unlock that, that power from AI. And that was the point of the book and sharing some stories about people that have actually done this. I mean, you got people that, like there were three lawyers, zero technical knowledge, you know, they were just looking to solve a problem, found one and actually built an AI associate lawyer. I mean, they're doing really well, like Walmart and Target, all these big companies are their clients now. They're using their AI system. And I want people to feel empowered by doing that, but it really starts with what are the problems in your space and how do you think differently about it, right? You mm-hmm. need a little foundational bit of AI knowledge, but you need the domain expertise, right? There's too many companies out there that are relying on their technologists. And they have some very smart technologists, but they're not going to fully understand the problems a doctor faces, a lawyer faces, mm-hmm. an accountant faces, you know, a government regulator faces. It's, it's a new type of like IT project essentially that we need to really dig into the, the business or domain side and then figure out what's the right technological tools, the right AI capabilities to come in and make a, a, an opportunity, a true solution. Yeah, the your book uh, on the AI revolution. Um, there's several things I really uh, I thought was really solid about it. Um, you know, and I've I've read a bunch of AI books in the process. Um, but what I what I really love about yours is there's a couple of things that if you don't know anything about it. Um, one, it gives you the history of AI and it kind of leads you through the history of kind of how we got started, um, those different types of, you know, that's you know, actually where I, I learned, I think, the narrow intelligence, general intelligence, super intelligence um, inside that book. And then what's really great about it is you actually, it, you know, it felt, like, it felt like you put a bit of your soul, a bit of your person, a bit of your almost avatar into the book because you had all of these examples of, the, of people that you know in your life um, that, that have made some very incredible um, artificial intelligence projects. Like um, there's a gentleman uh, from Lingmo who was like, who was a plumber um, who actually, you know, was able to make an actual artificial intelligence tool to help with um, real time uh, language translations. And there was uh, someone else from, um, they were a part of a UN or something like that. That was almost like a, a therapist bot that they would have chat conversations to help uh, children, or teens, or people in crisis to kind of give them advice and things. And so it was. What I liked about it is like there's. I don't remember how many examples, but you had dozens and dozens of examples of all these practical use cases versus talking about like the highly technical bits and getting lost in the weeds with like you know you know explaining how it works and that. But you're saying, hey, look, here's all these people who have solved all these different problems in all these different areas. And to me is once you can, once you see, okay, this is a tool and then here's, here's, you know, 57 different types of use cases, you can start to apply that tool as a lens 
uh, through and say, oh, okay, well, I'm from the world of, uh, um, I don't know, uh, lawn mowing. Okay, here are the areas in lawn mowing that I have my issues, <laughs> right? Okay, what are, the, what are the issues? Okay, well, these 57 people were solving these types of problems, and then you will naturally digest all that data kind of like an AI and then output a possible predictive result for your own field and, and that was one of the things I found to be very um, helpful. I think you were kind of helping to kind of work with predictions for people going from nothing to understanding the technology to applying it to a field that they understand. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But that that's the ultimate goal. It's, it's, it's not just about helping people get the awareness, but it's helping people turn that awareness into ideas and then turn those ideas into actual solutions. Yes. Right? I, there's a lot of great conferences. There's a lot of great talks. Very inspirational, but that's where I see people struggle the most. They're like, "Okay, I, I get it. What should I be thinking about, and how do I actually do that if I think of something?" Yeah. So, do you have any examples um, throughout the book? Because I just thought of a couple off the top of my head. But is there any things that stood out to you of like, the, "Oh my God, that was a great application." Um, for artificial intelligence uh, that had a, a, a great social impact or things that like, oh, wow, they, you know, they, they started from nothing. They're able to kind of get into the spaces. Um, do you have any of the ones that are top of mind that you could think of? Well, you, you kind of alluded to one of them, which was the kind of the AI sort of therapist. There's, there's a company called Cyrano AI where it was actually kind of started by a therapist and a neurolinguist. Mm -hmm. And what, what, they, what they're doing is their AI engine can actually look at, you know, a, a chat like text or, you know, people talking and kind of discern more than just sentiment, but determine intent and level of commitment, right? Mm -hmm. So you can think about, well, hey, is uh, this person going to really stick to their treatment plan? Like they have some disease, you can see the real level of seriousness and adapt, adjust, or try and influence that they really will do a better job of it. These guys, I mean, they're they're doing some great work. There's some interesting sales tools they've developed and stuff. But they originally started this to actually help depressed and suicidal teens, right? And that I think is actually a huge problem. I think it's a problem that a lot of people don't actually recognize. And only I, unfortunately, I've come to realize in the, in the past like year or so that you know, talking earlier about isolation and feeling disconnected, teenagers, are, even though they're growing up in this world of social media, there's a lot of trolling, a lot of cyberbullying, that they, they feel like they don't have outlets or they don't know how to communicate. And so there's actually a lot of troubled teens like that. And there's mm -hmm. not enough therapists or type of help or support systems for them. Mm -hmm. And so their goal was to actually give these teenagers a an outlet to you know, someone non-judgmental, this AI to talk with, but also kind of have the AI kind of assess how serious are they. If they're talking about killing themselves. Are they talking about they're really going to do it? They're planning to do it in like in the next day, in the next week, and we have to immediately get them help. But, you know, ironically, after they built it, they realized it's probably too dangerous to test with suicidal teens right off the bat, right? Yeah. Something goes wrong, it costs somebody, somebody their, their life. And so, you know, they went something innocuous. So they, you know, started in car sales where the worst thing that will happen is someone doesn't buy a car. <laughs> All right. But I think now they've, they've, shown, they've shown that it works, the promise. I think the big challenge I write that are having right now is getting people to believe it and mm -hmm. say like, well, okay, we get this, but does this really do it better than a person does? Well, and even though, like, I mean, there's a couple, I mean, there's a couple things there. One 
it doesn't necessarily need to be better than a person, but if you have a choice of no person and there's something there for you, especially something that's non-judgmental that you feel safe and comfortable to open up with, sometimes you, you need, if you get a high bar to jump over like a mental illness, sometimes you gotta take that high bar and just put it on the ground and step over it. And with that, I mean, if you have a, a, a way to go to something that you feel like, okay, well, maybe I don't feel quite comfortable talking to a therapist. Maybe I don't want to get judged. Maybe my life is so is so screwed over that I don't. I'm I'm broken and I can't have this conversation. Well I'll, well, I'll talk to this machine because I know I can say whatever I want to this machine, and it's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna, you know, call my mom. It's not gonna do these things. And so, you know, even though it's not gonna be, you know, I, maybe it doesn't start out again, super intelligence where it's better than humans, but even if it's just a narrow thing where it can just help you with one slice of, you know, I don't know, managing your emotions or being able to connect better with other people or, you know, being able to do any of those types of things. I mean, it's, it's, it still has a ton of inherent be- uh, value. And, and over time, as, as you know, Neil, like, you know, the more data you feed the system, the, the, the better it's going to get. 100% man 100% it's, it's just like you know I was talking about, about those three lawyers that built out the AI lawyer mm-hmm. they started to, they actually sold off their firm and doing this full time it's called legalmation but you know people are like well okay great they're doing law work but a lot of their work is focused on the defendant side they're actually improving the access to justice right they're actually helping to to lower some of the barriers and give you know lawyers more time to spend with their clients. You think about public defenders, how overworked mm-hmm. they are. There's actually a way to actually improve access to justice for people. So, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of things going on, and I'm a big proponent of social enterprise, you know, social entrepreneurship. Nothing wrong with making money, but again, mindset, do we ask ourselves, as what I'm normally doing, can I create a positive social impact? Maybe yes, maybe no, but are we even thinking about it? <laughs> The combination of both uh, selfishness and selflessness, right? Because we are individuals, but we are connected to the global good. So, you know, how can I work on something that, you know, both benefits others as well as myself? And that's kind of uh, kind of a new way of thinking for entrepreneurship in this in this kind of uh, digital connected age. Um, what do you let me ask you this question? Um, I mean, I, I've seen you, you, you work tirelessly um, with the UN, you, you worked with a, a number of startups, you've written this book, I mean, you, you've been on this, this AI grind for quite a long time and been at the forefront in so many different ways. I mean, what's your holy grail? I mean, why do all this? I mean, what, what is the, you know, what is the, you know, the, the thing that you're chasing? My, my goal in life is to try and leave the world at least as good as I found it, if not better. All right, there's lots of things we can do. I'm not saying like give up everything, give up money and give up all these things, but I believe that there's small things each of us can do that can contribute to that, right? That mm-hmm. again, as a whole, we're doing good things for the planet, we're doing good things for society, we're helping each other, right? But are we looking for those small things that we're willing to do? Mm-hmm. And I just want, you know, that, that's what I want. I want to leave the world as good as I found it, if not better. And if I can help inspire people to do these things, then I feel like I've helped accomplish that goal. That's beautiful. And if people wanted to kind of get a hold of you or reach out to you uh, to talk about whether it's artificial intelligence or sustainable goals or social impact models, I mean, how do they get a hold of you? 
Um, you can obviously find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter. You can also go to my website, neilsahoda.com. There's a contact form. Um, I, like I said, I love chatting with people. Obviously, love opportunities, especially for social good. And you know, if if you guys want to want to talk or like, hey, uh, how did you actually help other people do disruptive thinking? Always glad to chat about that. Beautiful, awesome, Neil. I uh, really appreciate you coming on to this podcast and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Awesome, Dylan. Thanks for having me and uh, you know, everyone stay safe, stay healthy and you know, you know, keep, keep, keep doing good. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please, Give me an email or shout out at Dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventures. Until next time.